Matthew chapter 2, we're going to read the whole chapter. If you want to follow along, there's a Bible probably in front of you in the seat there, or you can pull it up on your phone. I'm going to be reading from the ESV, but your pew Bible is an NIV, so bear with me. Um, Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that had been seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead." And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. <clears throat> 
God, as we let your word wash over us sometimes in large swaths like this, let us set our feet down in the story that you've given us and let us be in this narrative. Let us experience and imagine what it must have been like. And let us learn from your character and your goodness to see your guiding hand, not just in the life of the people in this story, but in our life, God. Let us see the miraculous hand that you have cleared the way for us in our life. Let us see where you are calling and guiding us. God, as I communicate um, this word, uh, just may your spirit be on my heart that we all might be captured by what you want us to hear from this text, that we might come to know you more. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as Megan said, we're, we're kind of closing out the Christmas season. It always feels a little weird after New Year to be Christmassy. I don't know how many of you guys keep your tree up until like the needles are falling off. Um, we're that kind of family, but this year we walked, we came back in from a week away and Megan says, get it out of here. It's, it's just going to fall apart. I don't like it anymore. It's not the spirit anymore. But let's, let's spend just today, whatever persuasion you may be of, let's spend today and let's make this the day where we adore the king. Where we celebrate the incarnation, where we're no longer anticipating like we were on Christmas Eve, but we are actually in the presence of the baby child, Jesus, God in the flesh. And let's ask this question, why do we adore him? Why do we adore Jesus? On Christmas Eve, we underscored that God was with us, that this is an anticipation of seeing that God is with us. He is coming to be with us. He is guiding us to himself. But this text today shows us that God is not just with us, he is also for us. Now, let me give you an example of why this matters. Okay, everybody knows the story of the Titanic. If God is with us, then he could be like the captain of the Titanic, going down with the ship. That doesn't really help us very much. God simply being with us doesn't really help us very much. God must be for us. He must be anticipating the icebergs. He must be planning and designing and charting a sure course rather than to be somebody who's overcome with hubris, who thinks that he can just plow the way. He must be wise and faithful and true. If he's designed a course for our life in which we are going to run in and sink, it does not matter how much he is with us. Some of us have that view of God or have had that view in our life. Sure, God may be with us, but he's not for me, so it doesn't really help me that much. In fact, you're tormenting me, God. But we see from the Bible that God is not an overconfident or unprepared sea captain of a decadent time. God is an appropriately confident and infinitely prepared creator and guide over every aspect of existence. And as Lord over this world, he, he, he desires for every moment of every day to be saving. He is a saving God. He is actively working in his spirit's appeals to us. 
And he has our hands around our souls at every moment. And he can reach us to bring us back to him. And that is the work he is doing for us. And he will have the last say. He will be victorious. He will bring humanity everything we need to finally be at home with him forever. This is the final word of the Bible. This is the deep hope that keeps us spreading hope, is that God loves us and is working every moment of every day to draw all those who choose him back home. One way we could view the suffering of the world is God continuing to tenaciously hope for us in the midst of all the brokenness that we would wake up and come home to him. That is adoring Christ. So I want to walk through today in Matthew 2, and I want to ask this question. In this story, in this text, every time we look at the Bible, we have to take the big picture of the theology we have, but we have to say, what is this particular passage saying? What does this Christmas story tell us God is for? Who is God for primarily in this story? And who is he for therefore in our story? It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that in this story, everything is focused on the baby. Everybody is focused on the baby. God himself is for the Messiah child in this story. Now that doesn't mean he's not for us. It means in this narrative, God is for the Messiah King. So we're going to ask the question, why is God for this infant Messiah? How is he for this Messiah? And what is the Christian response? So before, before we dive in to those why and how questions, let's just for a second look at who God is for in this story. In verse one, it says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east and came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now remember in this Advent series, we've been looking at this idea of the once and future king. We've been taking that idea of King Arthur, right? And looking at who is the one who is going to come and pull the sword from the stone? Who is the human worthy of doing that? And we examined how throughout Israel's history, they were yearning for a Messiah, an anointed one, a human king worthy of being the leader of Israel. And we see over and over and over how those kings fell, becoming at the apex of David, less and less and less able to take the mantle. And now we have wise men coming from Persia and Babylon, from the east, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Where is the Messiah? Where is the anointed one? In the story of a a movie maybe some of you have seen, one of my favorites, it's called Children of Men. Okay, it's directed by a director named Alfonso Cuaron in 2006, which didn't seem like that long ago until I realized that's now 15, 16 years ago. Unbelievable. The setting of this story has Clive Owen and Julianne Moore and great cast, which I won't go into even though I want to. Um, 
It's a sci-fi story that is set in a, in a future, actually a near future in 2027, where men have grown infertile and we're no longer able to produce the next generation. This is the dystopian world set forth in this film. Perhaps it's symbolic in our time, at least, of thinking of the, the results of toxic, toxic masculinity or the results of male pride or the results of just human hubris and just our, our, our suicidal tendencies as a culture. Forces of domination or war. There are so many different themes that could be exemplified by this idea that one day, suddenly, society would fall apart because we're no longer able to continue ourselves. We're not fit. We're not people who have it in us to lead ourselves anymore. But those are actually not the main focus of this film. It doesn't have a preachy tone about the way that the human race has blown it and how exactly we're going to correct all those problems. Instead, Children of Men explores the themes of hope and faith in face of overwhelming futility and despair. It's very clear that whatever the reason is, a book like Ecclesiastes is correct when it says the heart of the sons of men is full of evil and madness is in their heart while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. Depressing messages that resonate with us in this time where more and more we are making films where the future is not bright and utopian. We do not have a Jetsons future. We have a World War Z future. We have a future in which we don't have a lot of hope. We look around and we say, we are not capable of leading ourselves. But where does hope come from in this film? It comes from the most unlikely of places. It comes from the outside. When all of society is scrolling graffiti that says things like the last one to die, please turn out the lights. Hope must come from outside, and it comes from a woman who finds that she is pregnant by a man who's unknown in the story. We don't know where this baby comes from. And that's intentional in the narrative. The point is not what miraculous force brought the baby. It's that this woman is pregnant with a child that is coming from the outside, from outside the known, from outside the planning and the design of men to redeem and give hope to mankind. There is one woman named Key, who is bringing a child into the future. And the characters of this story cluster around and support and see that the, the message of this story is to be for this woman and her baby child if we want to hope for the future. She and her baby become a symbol of salvation for the earth. So because they care for the earth and those in it, Clive Owen's character and the ragtag group that comes around him, care for the world by caring for Key and her child. I'm sure you're already making connections 
to our text. This is a great image for us in the Matthew 2 story. Maybe one that is expansive for our imagination. Maybe one that helps us see the story outside of the Hallmark cards and outside of the trite imagery and the cliches that we boxed it in with and helps us see how much we too need this story. So much so that people are going in droves to see a Hollywood movie that exemplifies this very theme made by totally secular directors, made by people that just get that there is a deep truth that we need something from outside of ourselves to save us. A king born of some mysterious divine human origin to come into a crumbling world full of evil, short-sighted rulers with Mary and Joseph characters to embark on an adventure story, a wild road movie, full of dreams and visions and fantasied divine intervention. This is the story of Matthew 2. It's an incredible story. So one of the things right away that we should ask ourselves if indeed God is for the Messiah, then who should we be for? Who are the characters for in this story? They're for the Messiah. If we are truly for Jesus, then we can be sure we are for others. The two are linked, they are connected because he came for others. We should, another way of putting this is we should put our energy where God puts his energy. And he puts it in this story into his Messiah King for his just rule and leadership and decrees for wise living for all mankind. Another point of application for us that we talked about on Christmas Eve as we worked through prophecies, we found that the Israelites were only the prologue to the Bible's main character. In other words, for the entire Old Testament, as we said, the main actor was yet to come on the stage. So the message here at the beginning of the gospel stories is be ready, be ready. This is the message of John the Baptist is be ready. The Messiah is going to ask for you to participate in humanity's redemption story. This is what happens to Clive Owen's character in the film. He has given up hope. He, he used to be a freedom fighter. He used to be somebody who was an activist and believed he could change the world. And he's given up. And the message for all of us who worship the Messiah is to be ready. He's going to ask you to participate in a great adventure. We talked a lot in this series about alignment to God, about becoming able rulers in our own right. And this is an example of that. This is an example of us learning to rule by participating in the whole story. When we see the whole story as God being for us, okay? If we see the whole story as God being for us rather than for the Messiah, in some ways we don't have a role in that story. See, if God is for you, then you become sort of a passive character. What's your meaning? What's your purpose? Right, he's for you. So I guess I just go do what I'm gonna do today and he'll bless me. I guess I just 
you know, uh, design my life the way I want it, the American way, pick something and go after it, whatever my gifting is. I, I don't know, God's for me. You become a passive character. But when you realize God is for the Messiah to save all mankind, and he's asked mankind to be for the Messiah. Now I have a role to participate. Now the stakes are raised. Now the dark world that I'm in begins to make some sense because I'm here to participate with God. So why is God for the Messiah King? Let's look at the text. We see first that there's two fulfillments. This text has three different fulfillments of prophecy in it. There are two fulfillments of prophecy that I want to look at here when we ask the why question. But before I get to those specific prophecies, I want to talk about the nature of prophecy and fulfillment as part of the reason why God is for the Messiah King. The fact that these fulfillments are happening shows us that the Messiah King coming is part of God's great design. So why is God for the Messiah King? Because that's his plan, because that's his promise, and he keeps his promises. From Genesis 3, 15, we keep returning to that, right? Have this, we'll have the snake crusher who will crush the head of the serpent. We see from very early on that God has a plan and he is for the Messiah King because that is his design of salvation for humanity. But that's a little bit like saying, okay, he's for it because he said so. And if you've ever told your kids, because I said so, that's like your last resort answer for why it's not a very great answer. And they know it. They're like, gosh, okay. But why? You know, like, but why, dad? But why, mom? So let's look a little deeper. The prophecies actually help show us. Chapter two, verse six, the first prophecy is the people who Herod asks in Jerusalem, the chief priests and scribes, his close guys who know the Torah and know the Bible, say to him, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for you shall, from from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. The Messiah King is how God will shepherd his people. That's why. The why, why do we have a Messiah? Why do we need somebody to come and save us that is both human and divine? That's, like, that's actually a really fundamental question that we should ask more often. Why Jesus? Like, why aren't we just Jewish? Why don't we just believe God? Why Jesus? Because he knew it was how we needed to be shepherded. We need a person. We need somebody both like us and totally unlike us. And he designed us to need that. Christmas Eve, we talked about Hebrews 2, verses 16 through 18 from the message translation. It just reads really well. He says, it's obvious, of course, that the Savior didn't go to all this trouble for angels. It was for people like us, children of Abraham. That's why he had to enter into every detail of human life. 
Then when he came before God as high priest to get rid of the people's sins, he would have already experienced it all himself, all the pain, all the testing, and would be able to help where help was needed. Who do we trust the most? We trust the people who have been through it. As a mom, you trust other moms a lot more than some white guy up here telling you what to do, right? As a college student, you understand somebody who's been through college and has taken the test and has been, and you trust them even more if they've been to yours and they've been in your major. And now you trust them even more if they've been successful doing that. That's because that's how we're designed to learn. And so Jesus is part of that design to shepherd us. And how is the way that he will save? Well, this also strikes us at a very core level in our hearts. We know what is the most loving, saving act. And it is the act modeled by Jesus the Messiah. It's the suffering servant. It's modeled in every movie, every story that's come from the West, at least, has been birthed out of this Christian framework that resonates and is true, that there will be a sacrificial love that will show us the depths and the greatness of love. This is the litmus test for us whether we are loved or not by somebody. Will they sacrifice of themselves in order to help us? We intrinsically know it. This is the shepherd king, the one who will suffer for us. And Hebrews shows us this. And he is the one who will redeem humanity. The only way to shepherd, though, is to bring justice. Really, truly, the only way to shepherd us is to bring justice. We might not understand this as people who haven't been wronged in really deep ways, but maybe some people in this room have had abuse, or maybe some of these people in this room have been victims of the crime. And you understand that for somebody to really shepherd you, he's not flippant about people that have wronged you. He's a God of justice. Think about David as a shepherd. What's interesting about David? We always talk about this in David's story. He cared for, intended for his sheep, but he wasn't a, a limp noodle. Like the lions came and he had the slingshot, right? You hear that story in Sunday school. Well, that's always to set us up though for what David will really do as the true shepherd, as the shepherd for his people, the one who will be the Messiah and King for Israel because that's what David's name is. He will be the one who will slay Goliath. He will be the fabled giant killer. And this is actually what C.S. Lewis calls the true message of Christmas. He says, the message of Christmas could just as well be beware, he's coming. The giant killer is coming. Some of us are maybe tired of the Christmas imagery. And this could be a little helpful for us. Maybe it's not the most festive thing to put a dystopian sci-fi movie up to inaugurate the time of the incarnation and adoration, but perhaps it's what we need to see the power and the hope that God is going to bring, that he will take down the giants as the true shepherd. That he will not just be with us in some inconsequential way, but that he will be for us all the way to victory. Of course, this is complicated because it means that there will be some losers in this story. Luke 2, which has another account, Luke's account of the birth story, 
verses 34 through 35 talks about Simeon. And Simeon blessed the young Jesus at the temple and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. What is he saying there? He's talking to Mary, Jesus's mom. He's saying he will be a sword that will pierce through your own soul so that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. This is a little bit of a counterintuitive understanding for us of Jesus. We don't like to think about this side of Jesus, but Mary knew it. The high priest, the priest that blessed Jesus told her and Jesus himself says, I come to bring a sword. There's going to be some division. But Lewis also talks about how the son of, son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. If there's no consequences, there's no motivation. And so sometimes we need to remember that even Mary had to be motivated to realize the power of the shepherd and to not become herself some giant that he would need to slay. The son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. This is what the shepherding idea is. This is how he slays the giant, not by making us so strong, so to speak, nor making our evils in fact good, but by showing us our evils as evil. That's the real beauty of the truth part of Jesus, full of truth and grace. He shows our evils as evil, and we need that. We want that. That's why humility and contrite spirit and the ability to be corrected is so instrumental to being a Christian, so that we can profess our sin and repent and believe in his redemption for us. That's the message that Jesus brings. That's the message that John the Baptist brings, right? To get ready. This is how, this is part of how Jesus defeats the giant of the devil who is after us. And in a way, he puts himself into us in this way, thereby making us impossible to kill. You start to see how this is part of the fabric of the New Testament story. So being for the Messiah rather than God being for us and we're sort of passive and maybe just kind of feel like we can do whatever we want. When we are for the Messiah, what happens when we profess faith in Christ, which is the way that we side with him, is we proclaim not our own perfection, but his perfection. This is what keeps it from being salvation by works. This is, I'm not trying to articulate here that to be for Messiah, we need to do so much to be in his good graces, but instead it's in a question of alignment. And the second prophecy that, that is talked about in this text is in 2.15, because he says he calls, God calls the Messiah his son. Out of Egypt, I called my son. The Messiah is an extension of God himself, the one who will save us. He is God as a child. He is a child of God. And because he is his flesh and blood, as we would say in our culture, because his son is the only one who can save us by design, 
God would be ridiculously unloving not to save his son. If he is loving to us, he would would be unloving to us and he would be a maniac if he didn't see his wager through because God keeps his promises. This is probably the haunting in the back of the minds of the disciples of the cross. Imagine, just as a darkness of exile, they knew that they knew that they knew deep, deep down that God would not abandon his son. So what's going to happen? All right, so let's find how it all plays out. What's the story? What's the narrative? How is God for the Messiah King? And for this, we need to dig into the rich narrative in Matthew 2 for a minute and ask, what does God do to intervene in the world for the sake of his son? And by extension, for the sake of his people, who he would like to redeem as his children. First thing he does is he is signaling invitations to the faithful, the watching, the listening. How does this start? Well, there's a star in the sky that is signaling an invitation to those who would see the power of nature and the power of science and the power of astrology and would have put that as their highest priority and that God is using to steer them to him. That's an invitation, that's a call. The other call we see is the call to Joseph. This happens throughout the gospel stories and it's going to usher in a recalibration for Joseph. So there's an invitation that actually comes and recalibrates Joseph. We see this in the previous chapter, Matthew 1 verse 19. says, and her husband Joseph being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. You heard that word divorce and we just think, Joseph, like what's going on, man? Like. Divorce? This is Mary and Jesus, right? Like, you've really gone off your rocker to want. No. What does it say right before that? He's a just man. Actually, in an honor shame culture, he's trying to keep her the safest she can possibly be given the circumstances. This is a wise move. He's saying, rather than have her come into shame and everybody in our circle of friends realize that she's been sleeping around. I'm going to divorce and separate quietly. So there could be this idea that that actually she got pregnant by another man and it's not a breach of the marriage covenant. You have to really understand the Jewish legal code to understand this, but this is a really admirable thing. It's the best case in a set of really bad situations, right? He resolved to divorce her quietly. Verse 24, but when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. So God came to him in a dream. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. In the invitation to Joseph, there is actually a recalibration that happens. God invades the world. He invades our world. He invites us to recalibrate. He gives us new information sometimes. Perhaps he gives us friends. Perhaps he gives us dreams. Perhaps he gives us the word of the Bible and he invites us to recalibrate, to align with him. See, it's not that Joseph was so misaligned. 
It's that Joseph was abiding by all the cultural and legal codes, but God's intention, God's heart and his spirit for what was going to happen, Joseph was not privy to. So God intervened and presented it to him and realigned him. We see that God is for the Messiah King by leveraging the gifts of the faithful. This is interesting. Even those least expected. I've been a recipient of this and can speak to the wonder of the faithful coming and giving gifts to those who don't seem to be necessarily deserving of them. A baby in a manger, somebody who can't give anything back sending support and aid, but sometimes it even comes from the least expected. These are, by the way, these are wise men, kings, royalty, people of very high stature that are coming from Persia and Babylon. This is an example of God using the bad for good because what in the biblical story did Persia and Babylon do? They invaded and destroyed Zion, the presence of God, the capital city, Jerusalem, and they took all of the people of Israel out in exile. These are the bad guys. These are the bad guys. And God has flipped the narrative and said, don't judge people by stereotypes. Don't play identity politics. Look at the spirit of what somebody is doing. I will use even the bad for good. I will call all to me. And he causes disruptions in what Paul often calls the powers and principalities. These are the the, the political and religious leaders. That Matthew 2 could also be called the tale of two kings. Because what we have here is the birth of Jesus and we have the disruption of Herod's rule. Herod and all of Jerusalem. And what that means when it says all of Jerusalem with him is everybody in the power structures of Jerusalem. This is like the mayor of Portland and everybody in City Hall starting to whisper together and say, this is going to put us in jeopardy. This nobody that's just been born and is rising up is going to put all of us in jeopardy. And we're going to see that they will be usurped. And we see this weirdly inverted landscape of heroes and villains. Who is a hero? A weird, weirdly heroic are the wise men, the royalty of Persia and Babylon. Who is the villain? Herod, the king of Jerusalem. Like, This is an inverted landscape, and it's showing us how the story of the arrival of the Messiah King is inverted of the expectations of the time. He creates disruptions, and then he's subverting this tainted power by opening doors of provision on unlikely places. That's how he rescues. That's how God does his rescuing. Now imagine for a moment the mystery of Mary Knowing God will be faithful to bring his Messiah to adulthood, to save Israel as their king, but not knowing how. Imagine for a moment that you know God is faithful to his promises, but you don't know how. What would you do as a mother in that situation? Would you be like, oh, God's going to be for the king, savior of the universe. So like, I don't know, I can sleep through this crying fit tonight. Like, Do you think if you got into her mind, do you think she would be willing to test God? 
to abandon in any way the child she's been given. No, Mary is going to be completely involved because even though she knows God won't fail, she knows she can't do what she's wired to do. She can't do what she must do. She can't do what every fiber in her being needs to do for this child if she were to just give it up to God. So she participates to the limits that she is able to do. And then she lets God handle the rest. Mary does everything in the story she can do as a mom, but she can't do enough to escape Herod. She can't do enough to, to, to know the future. And so God intervenes in the story and he disrupts and he subverts, but always with the partnership and participation of the people of God, doing everything in their power that they can do. Matthew 2 is a story of the weak and the broken and the guilty, but the repentant triumphing over the powerful and prideful in the most unexpected ways in ways that will require God's hand and his power to work. It's like any good redemption story, the characters have to make a turn of some kind. What got us here won't get us there is an adage I've used many times. The faithful in Israel know why they are crumbling. They know to take our movie story. They know why the men are infertile and can't have babies and why there's hopelessness because they have strayed from God and they literally don't know how to lead themselves and they need a Messiah. Joseph becomes sort of the representative of Israel, of the called, the recalibrated, the surrogate father who will come to raise the next and truer king, Jesus. But Herod is sort of his foil. Herod is the fool. Herod is the one who will go down with the Titanic. He is not for Israel. He is for himself and his plans. And he will go down with his pride. And actually, sorry, Foil should be used for the wise men. A foil is the character who helps create contrast. The wise men show us that about Herod, right? Here, here is the bad guys that are better than the supposedly good guy to show us the, the dis disintegrating power of pride. Somebody who says, no, I am king of the Jews. No, I'm the anointed. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one who does all of this. And the majesty of Matthew 2 is that it shows even deeper how all of this will play out, not just with the characters, but with the narrative plot, which is a familiar type of plot. The plot shown in this story is a rehash, a rebuilding of the Exodus story. Where do they go? They actually go down into Egypt, just like the Israelites did. They're called in a dream. Joseph had dreams. What do those dreams result in? They result in him going down to Israel. Where actually is all of Jacob's family pulled because of family? They can't but not go to Egypt. This is where God brings them by his divine hand and then brings them back out. There, this is a very conscious narrative move by the authors. 
to show how the birth of Jesus is going to be a new Exodus story. Verses 13 through 18. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was, was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years and younger, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then what was fulfilled, what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Herod becomes so prideful, becomes so obsessed with his power that in this story, they show that the, the attempts of humans to rule over themselves have turned Herod, the king of the Jews, into Pharaoh. That's, that's the imagery of this story. That the leader that is in charge of Jerusalem is actually turned into an oppressive leader. This time, not an Egyptian, but an Israelite who's serving the Romans, the evil powers and principalities who obsessed and is going to destroy the children of Israel to keep his power. It's, it's just a complete example of the Exodus story. And Jesus will be the one, the Moses, who will come out of that, who will be shepherded out by the hand of God and brought out from the wilderness outside of Jerusalem, just like Moses had to go to Midian, and he will come in to redeem his people. And this shows us that God opens supernatural doors to bring unshakable redemptive power. So I'm, I'm showing you the work as I do a lot of times, and it takes a little longer because if we learn how to read our Bibles, we can start to see these examples. And it's actually a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to do this narrative work. Of course, I'm saying this as somebody who likes storytelling, but I think a lot of you understand it's a lot of fun to figure out and see how these examples are being used and are being articulated so that we can begin to see the themes that are coming out. That this is not the story that we just necessarily expect. This is not our hallmark sense of adoration. This is not our sense of the three magi next to the shepherds and the lighting's perfect and everybody's got the key light on and it's just great and they're all like, oh, shot, snap, flash. Like that's not, that's not the Matthew 2 story. It's a lot more grisly than that. It's a lot more action-packed than that. It's strange to read the Christ story as a chase scene. But if we read it like that, we will see that they're fleeing from dreams down to Egypt. And there's this whole story. No sooner has that shot been taken that everybody is getting out of town. How is this then an example 
of adoration, and we'll wrap up here. How is this an example of adoration? What we could also say is, what is our response then to the Messiah King? What is our response? How do we adore him in light of this story? Is it simply the, oh, he's sweet, that's sweet. All right, hey, it's 11.30, I was thinking we'd go get lunch here, and today I wanna take care of the gutters on the hat. Like, is that the adoration we do? Is that what the Christian life looks like? pause for the shot, adore him, and move on with our lives? Or is it much more intrinsic than that? Is the adoration throughout the fabric of this whole story? We have here humans adoring, just like here. We have humans adoring in the most unlikely circumstances. This is adoration. This is adoration. This is taking and saying, I am for the Messiah in the most unlikely circumstances. I am for hope. I am for partnering with the people, the ragtag groups. A lot of us in these scenarios, right? A lot of us, when we see that on the wall, we get afraid and we say, I got to get out of this town. I mean, we rolled in from Walla Walla, which is just couldn't be more different from Portland, which where our family lives. We roll into Portland and I remember the city that we're in. I remember it as I drive up to my house and I go, okay, we're back. Like, God, what do you want me to do here this week? You need me. So where are you calling me amidst the garbage piles on the side of the room and the homeless camp at the end of the street. Where are you calling me, God? I'm living in the Christmas story out here when I rolled back into town and you're asking me to adore you. How do I adore you here? But often we get afraid. So let's talk about fear for a moment. There's a lot of fear in this passage. And there is fear that is okay. All fear is not bad, right? God understands fear and will meet you in your fear. Joseph's fear is driven by the right motivations, right? At one point here in verse 22, it says, but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. That's not bad fear. That's just like sensible, wise fear. He's going, I'm for the Messiah. These guys were killing babies. So I think I probably shouldn't go hang out where they are. Like, that's just wisdom. That's not bad fear. It's an emotion that is helpful when driven by the right motivations. We could better maybe call this fear a just concern or being careful. And this, you know this fear is okay because it's loyalty to the Messiah. It's a form of belief. Okay, but what the angels do when they come, what do the angels always do when they come? Fear not, right? Fear not. God says, don't fear out of anxiety. Have concern. Strongly consider the facts, but fear not. Trust in me, I will open doors and I will provide ways. Don't become hopeless in your fear. Be wise and hopeful and careful. Those are very different things. But there is a fear that is not so good, and this is the denial of the Messiah. I will live out my fear of threat to myself. I will 
build my whole life out of a fear of the threats that are to myself and they will motivate me and they will justify my actions. This is what Herod does with his fear. Because Joseph's afraid, but Herod's also very afraid. We have two afraid dudes in this story. And what does Herod do with his fear? He goes against the Messiah directly. So for those of us who hold on to our throne and find ourselves turning into monsters like Herod, fear not is God saying, don't be afraid to let your throne crumble at the foot of Jesus' throne. For your fear will transform into adoration. If you're you're afraid of losing yourself and who you are at the feet of Jesus, fear not. If you're afraid of becoming part of a church or being friends with Christians, or you're afraid of going out into this city and doing the dirty work, fear not. For I will transform your fear into adoration. I will redeem your fear inside of my glory. And your story, your story will be sort of unnecessary to you after a while as you begin to define your story as part of God's story. Now that's a wild statement to make this day and age. I'm not telling you your story is unnecessary. I'm saying that as you begin to follow Jesus and before his Messiah, you won't feel like your stories as necessary. And for some of you, that will actually be the beautiful crumbling of your throne at the throne of Jesus. I don't need to have a legacy and get likes and have a following and I just don't need it anymore. It doesn't matter to me anymore. Could also be that our response is a form of, of adoration and awe. We see this with the Magi and I'll be brief here. The Magi see the stars and they see astrology and God is commanding them and using their faith beyond earthly kings to bring them at the feet of the Messiah. I'll just use a quick example. It could be that adoration and awe is like my friends who are doctors or scientists who study the human body and it brings them to God, right? It could be that our adoration is awe that brings us to the question, how? Like, how? That is a beautiful sunset. How on earth? Like, why do I even think that's beautiful? How is my brain wired that it even, like, how? That kind of awe is actually an adoration of the Savior, the one who comes from outside to save us, the one who fills our void. Jesus, or Mary finds it in a much more personal way. The science view could be a little cold and removed for some of you. Mary is visited by an angel that tells her she will be the mother to the savior of mankind. Joseph is visited in a dream that shows him where to take his family. It's very intimate adoration and awe, but it's still adoration and awe. It's a little bit like the story of the drummer boy, right? I'll bring my gifts to you. But this intimacy and fealty combined that we want to bring the best to Jesus. But the big big point that I'm out here is that it leads us to adoring as accompanying, accompanying the Messiah. We are adoring by joining forces, by joining the group. 
And actually, we become less hopeless the more of us there are on the team. That's just the, that's just the nature of it. So some of us are, are getting through the sort of emotional letdown of Christmas. Some of us have set the Christmas bar pretty high, and we are dealing with what just happened. Like, what was that? And I think it could be helpful this week to get through, get to the point and get through the noise. And so I just want to read a short excerpt that was written about C.S. Lewis's thoughts on Christmas. To separate his feelings about the spiritual and commercial side of the season, in 1954, Lewis wrote an essay called Xmas and Christmas, in which he created a fictional land called Nyaturb, which is just Britain spelled backwards, that celebrates two festivals, Xmas, E-X-M-A-S, is a festival of excesses, with participants frantically exchanging cards and gifts, often reluctantly. The other, Christmas, is a much simpler, quieter celebration centered on the birth of a child. He disputed the belief that the two festivals are the same simply because they are celebrated on the same day. The pictures which are stamped on the Xmas cards have nothing to do with the sacred story which the priests tell at Christmas, he wrote. We have to be a little bit like the people in this story and see the real truth of what's happening and not just the identities and the images. That's how we get to the point through the noise. So take a minute to recircle the wagons of your Christmas hopes and double down on your Christmas faith and make Christmas less about the experience of reaching the bar and the the hopes and dreams you had for it and fight the Christmas letdown instead of assaying, instead of saying it didn't quite feel like Christmas this year, which was actually a statement I heard in my family this week. And I was like, what? It didn't feel like Christmas. Like, what did I do wrong? You know, like, it didn't feel like Christmas is here. That's like a slap in the face, right? And then I realized, like, nothing in the biblical story tells us the point of the season is to feel like it's Christmas. This, this is a season and a commercial enterprise just built around nostalgia and an emotional feeling. But Christmas is actually a training ground. Like actually what Christmas is, is an exercise in remembering a story that is training us to be people of generosity and sacrifice and service. And we practice, let this reframe you, we practice by doing what we do at Christmas, giving cards, making gifts, hanging out with family, sacrificing our time, hosting, uh, going out and serving in a soup kitchen. All of those things that maybe are built around part of our Christmas like habits is actually just practice. God's expansive with that idea. And what he said is, hey, you did a really good job with your family. That was a good training ground. Good job exercising generosity, service. Now just go do it. Keep go doing it. Go do it with people you've never met. Go do it with people who can't give back to you. And accompany the Messiah by adoring him in that way. Isn't that a wildly different way for us to think about Christmas. Let's pray. God, I just pray that um, you would constantly get in between our just rigid understandings of who you are and your holidays and your stories 
Get in there and break them apart a little bit. Get in there and help us reimagine things. See you freshly and new. God, help us be a people who would be generous and graceful with each other as we are all navigating, perhaps some of us are reconstructing, perhaps some of us are deconstructing, trying to find out our part in this story. God, call us to that, recalibrate us, and help us build each other up as we slowly abandon our stories for the sake of your story. In Jesus' name, amen.